Good morning. Uh, well, if you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Colossians and turn to Colossians chapter 2. So recently, we celebrated Good Friday. And every year around Good Friday, uh, Christians will reacquaint themselves with the passion narratives of Christ, the passion narratives of the gospel accounts of the suffering and death of Jesus Christ. And one of the most gut-wrenching parts of the passion narratives are the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. These are Jesus' last words as he hangs on the cross for the salvation of sinners. For example, Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He also says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. These are just two of the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. So let me ask you, which of the seven sayings is your favorite? Which one grips you the most? Or better yet, which one is the most important? Well, in my opinion, the most important one is, it is finished. In John 19, verse 30, uh, Jesus says, it is finished, signifying that his work of salvation was complete. And the reason I think it's the most important one is because for over 2,000 years, people have been saying that it isn't. It isn't finished. That when it comes to salvation, Christ wasn't enough. That you need to add something to his work. So whether it's penance or baptism or good works in general, you need to add something in order to be saved. So in our text today, Paul wants us to know that when Christ saves you, he doesn't just give you a halfway salvation, he gives you a complete salvation. You see, the work of Christ was complete. And so if you trust him, he applies his completed work to you. And so as we've been saying for the past few months, if you have Jesus, you have everything you need. Go to Colossians 2, verses 11 through 15. That's our text today, Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, as we continue our series in the book of Colossians. Reading from Colossians 2, starting in verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Would you pray with me? Our God and our heavenly father, would you sanctify us by the truth? Your word is truth. God, would you open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word? Lord, I pray that the message today would be helpful and encouraging and that it would put forth Christ in all of his glory. 
And I pray that by your spirit, you would draw us closer to your son, that we might receive him as he is offered to us in the gospel. And Lord, we pray that our time today would not just be a theological reflection, but it would cause us to love him more and to give him praise for our salvation. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as you all know, the point of the Bible is Jesus. Uh, Jesus is the subject of the scriptures. And as you also know, the point of Colossians is that Jesus is sufficient. Uh, He is sufficient for living the Christian life. Now, last time we went over Colossians 2, verses 8 through 10. And we saw that since the fullness of God dwells in Jesus, if we have Jesus, then we have also been filled to his fullness, which means that we are complete. Now, in our passage today, Paul continues with the idea of being complete in Christ. And he shows us that being complete also applies to our salvation. And his point is this. When Christ saves you, he gives you a complete salvation. When he saves you, he gives you a complete salvation. And we see this in three ways. First, we are complete because of our union with Christ. A second, we are completely forgiven in Christ. And then third, we have a complete victory because of Christ. So we have a complete union, complete forgiveness, and a complete victory. The three ways we can think about our salvation in Christ. First, we are complete because of our union with Christ. One of the most important doctrines in the Bible is the doctrine of union with Christ. Uh, This doctrine says that Christians have been united to Christ by faith through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, we see expressions of this uh, throughout our passage. For example, in verse 11, it says that we are in him. In verse 12, we were buried and raised with him. And then in verse 13, we were made alive together with him. So we are in Christ or in him, or we are with Christ or with him. These phrases all point to our union with Christ. Now, what exactly does it mean to be united to Christ? Well, to be united to Christ means that when you become a Christian, you are joined to Jesus in such a way that his life flows through your life. So all that he accomplishes in salvation becomes yours if you are united to him by faith. Now, this union can be described by Jesus' image of the vine and the branches. So, uh, right, if you think about a vine, uh, the life of a vine flows through its branches. And so what happens to the vine also happens to the branches. And likewise, what happens to Jesus also happens to us because of our union with Christ. Now, in verses 11 and 13, we're going we're to see four implications of our union with Christ. The first implication is that in Christ, we have a new identity. So through our union with Christ, we have a new identity. Look at verse 11. It says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Now, I am not going to give you a medical description of circumcision. Don't worry. But just in case you don't know, let me tell you what it is biblically. In the Old Covenant, God's people were identified by circumcision. The Israelites would circumcise every boy at eight days old. And this was done to mark them off as members of God's covenant people. 
So I was reading an article about George Washington, and it pointed out that during the American Revolution, Washington had to find a way to identify his soldiers. You see, he inherited an army that was largely untrained and lazy. So he came up with a way to distinguish his faithful soldiers from those who were lazy. So what he did was he developed a system of ribbons. And so if you were wearing one of these ribbons on your hat, for example, a white ribbon, well, everyone knew that you were one of Washington's faithful. So likewise, God instituted circumcision so that to identify those who were truly his people. Now, under the new covenant, God has also given us an identifying mark. But it's not a spiritual, it's not a physical circumcision. It's a spiritual circumcision. It's a circumcision made without hands. Or as Paul says in Romans 2, it's a circumcision of the heart. So Paul wants the Colossians to know that through their union with Christ, God has marked them with a circumcised heart. And so they have everything they need to become a part of God's covenant people. Through their union with Christ, they have a new identity. Now, the second implication is that in Christ, we have a new nature. So through our union with Christ, we have a new nature. In verse 11, Paul answers two questions about spiritual circumcision. The first question is, what does circumcision do? Right? So, so what exactly does spiritual circumcision do? Well, Paul says that it's a putting off of the body of the flesh. In other words, it's a cutting off of our sinful nature. So what God does in circumcising our hearts is he gives us a new nature. He takes our old nature, which is one of sin and rebellion, and he replaces it with a new one, with new affections and new desires for the things of God. And although sin still remains in us, it no longer reigns in us because we have a new nature. Now, this was not a new concept for God's people. You see, back in Deuteronomy, Moses told the Israelites that what they really needed was not just to have some skin cut off, but what they really needed was to have a circumcised heart, to be changed from the inside out. Now, the second question is, who is this circumcision done by? Right? So who is the one who circumcises our hearts? Well, Paul says that it's done by Christ. It's the circumcision of Christ. Christ is the one who circumcises our hearts. So friends, is this true of you? Have you been circumcised by Christ? Do you have a new nature with new affections, with new desires for Christ? You see, being a Christian is not about doing better or trying harder, but it's about having a new nature. You know, they say that you can take a pig, you can give it a bath, and you can dress it all up, but it'll, it'll always go right back to being a pig because that's his nature. And so likewise, fallen people will always go back to their sinful ways without any hope for change unless God gives us a new nature. And friends, only Christ can change our nature. Only through our union with Christ can we be changed from the inside out. And only Christ can offer us such a complete salvation. Now, the third implication is that in Christ, we've been given a new life. So in Christ, we've been given a new life. So you see, it's not just that you have a new nature, but as a Christian, you live a completely new life altogether. 
And the reason this is possible is because you were buried and raised with Christ. Look at verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So here, Paul brings up the issue of baptism. He says that we were buried with him in baptism. Now, let's remember what baptism is really about. A baptism is a picture of our union with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. Right? So when you get baptized, you're depicting the reality that you have died and been raised with Christ. So what Paul is saying is this. If you are united to Jesus, which is what baptism portrays, then God has buried your old life and he's raised you up to live a new life. You see, when God saved you, you died. You died to your old way of life. Uh, You died to your old way of living and your old way of thinking. And then God raised you to live a new life, a new resurrected life. This is similar to what Paul says in Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. Listen to what he says. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So you see, you died with him, you were buried with him, and then you were raised with him so that you might walk in newness of life. So friends, let me ask you, do you remember your baptism? You know, every time you watch someone else's baptism, you should remember your own baptism. And what I mean by that is remembering your death to the old and your putting on of the new. Remembering your death to your old way of life and then rising to live a new life, a new resurrected life. You see, Paul is calling us to remember these realities. Despite your circumstances, despite what you're going through, despite your struggles, remember that you have died and been raised with Christ. And to remember this, that you have all of these blessings in Christ. In Christ, we've been given a new life. So friends, do you know what you have in Christ? Because of your union with Christ, you have a new identity, a new nature, and a new life. Now, before we move on, uh, let me say a few words about verses 11 and 12. Uh, There are people who say that these two verses teach that Christians should baptize their babies. And the reason they say this is because we have circumcision and baptism in two verses side by side. Right? Do you see that? We have circumcision and baptism in two consecutive verses side by side. And so they conclude that there's a relationship here between circumcision in the Old Covenant and then baptism in the New. And this would indicate that baptism replaces circumcision, so Christians should baptize their babies. Right? So if the Israelites were going to circumcise their baby boys we should also baptize our babies. Let me give you two reasons why I disagree with this based on this text. The first reason is that Paul is not talking about literal circumcision. Right? He's not talking about literal circumcision at all. Paul is only talking about spiritual circumcision. So the comparison doesn't even work. You can't compare New Covenant baptism with Old Covenant circumcision if you're not even talking about Old Covenant circumcision. Now, the second reason is here at the end of verse 12. In verse 12, Paul says that you were raised with him through faith. 
So Paul assumes that those who were baptized, those who he was talking about earlier in the sentence, had saving faith. They had faith in the power of God to raise Jesus from the dead. And friends, babies do not exercise saving faith. So these verses do not teach that Christians should baptize their babies. Okay, well, back to the implications of union with Christ. We're up to implication number four. Number four is in Christ, we have the gift of the new birth. So in Christ, we have the gift of the new birth. In verse 13, Paul takes us back to where it all starts. He says this, he says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. So God made us alive together with him. Friends, this is the language of the new birth. The new birth is, or regeneration is where God takes sinners and he gives them new life within. It's where we go from death to life, from having a heart of stone to having a heart of flesh. It's what Jesus was talking about in John chapter three, when he says that you must be born again. In other words, you must have a new life within. So this is what we have in Christ. God takes dead people and he makes them alive together with him. Friends, do you remember when you were saved? You know, many of us can't remember the exact moment we were saved, but the Bible is clear. Your salvation wasn't a process. It happened in an instant. You see, by God's sovereign grace, one moment you were spiritually dead and then God made you alive. Here's the thing. Each person comes into the world dead in their sins. Ephesians 2 verse 1 says that you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And here in Colossians, it says that we were dead in our trespasses and in the uncircumcision of our flesh. And by the way, to be dead means to be dead. It means to be spiritually dead to God. So, so not only were we, we were not merely sick or wounded, we were dead. We were as responsive to God as a dead person is responsive to anything. And, and, and most importantly, we were unable and unwilling to come to God for salvation. And by the way, when Paul says the uncircumcision of your, fre- your, your flesh, he's referring to the fact that the Colossians were Gentiles. In Ephesians, Paul says that the Gentiles were the uncircumcision. And he reminds them of how far they were from Christ. Look at what he says in Ephesians 2 verse 12. He says, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. So Colossians, not only were you dead, you were dead twice over. That's what Paul was saying. How many of us come from backgrounds where we could not have been farther away from the Lord, where we were living in sin, we were living lives of destruction, and running as far as we could away from God. And then God, by his grace, made you alive. You were born again. And whereas you had no interest in the Bible and in the things of God, you began to see Christ as supremely valuable. Through the preaching of the gospel, God gave you the gift of faith and you repented of your sins because he made you alive together with him. 
Friends, how complete is your salvation? God doesn't just leave it up to you. He applies the work of Christ to you by opening your eyes to see the beauty of the gospel. Friends, your salvation is complete. So let's summarize this. In Christ, you have a new identity, a new nature, a new life, and a new birth. Our salvation is complete. And so we need nothing else outside of Christ because we have everything we need in Christ. Well, this brings us to my second point, point number two, we are completely forgiven. So we have a complete union, but we also have complete forgiveness. Look at the end of verse 13. He says that God, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now, here, Paul brings us to the heart of the matter. All of the benefits of being in Christ culminates in the blessing of being completely forgiven. Friends, in Christ, God has forgiven all of our trespasses, past, present, and future. Now, Paul here gives us two illustrations to show us how God forgives us. So first, he says that we all have a personal record of debt. Or if you translate this literally, it means a personal IOU. Now, an IOU was a document written by someone in debt. And this document would certify a person's indebtedness, and then it would be signed by the person to guarantee payment. Now, of course, this debt is not something we owe to a person, but it's something we owe to God. And we owe it to God because of our sin. You see, sin is a debt because we owe him our obedience. In fact, we owe him perfect obedience. So every sin that you have ever committed incurs a debt towards God. Uh, Every sinful thought, every sinful deed, and every sinful word incurs a debt towards God. And this debt must be repaid. It has to be repaid because God is holy. And since he is also just, his justice requires that he hold us accountable for our debt. But here's the problem. We can't repay it. And the reason we can't repay it because there's simply too much to repay. Uh, Let me ask you, if you were to add up all the sins that you've ever committed, how many items would be on your personal IOU? There's simply too much to repay. And, And even if we could repay it, what do we have to repay it with? The prophet Isaiah says that even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. So by trying to pay your debt, you actually add more debt. Because your righteous deeds are like filthy rags. How can God forgive us? How can he forgive all of our trespasses? Well, this is the second illustration where Paul says that God cancels our record of debt. He he literally wipes the slate clean. And he erases all of the penalties that come with it. So historians tell us that back then, IOUs were written on papyrus. And since the ink would not sink into the papyrus, it was possible for someone to literally wipe away your record. So God wipes away your record. But how can he do such a thing? How can a just God just simply wipe the slate clean? 
Well, look at the third illustration here. What he has to do first is to set it aside and nail it to the cross. Look at the end of verse 14. He says, this he sets aside, nailing it to the cross. So God takes your personal IOU and he nails it to the cross of Christ. In the ancient world, criminals would have their charges nailed on their cross. It would go on a placard right on top of the cross. So you see, Jesus took your sins on his cross and he dies for every single one. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God took our record of debt and he imputed it to Jesus. Do you know what that means? That God imputed our sins to Jesus. It means that God saw our sins as if it belonged to to Jesus, and he was punished for it. He bore God's wrath for our sins. Jesus paid it all so that we could be forgiven. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel, that sinners like me and sinners like you can be completely forgiven. So when I was in the third grade, uh, there was a day when I had really misbehaved at school. And so my punishment was to write out all of my transgressions on the chalkboard. And so my teacher asked me to stay behind during recess and to write out all the things that I had done wrong that day. And so uh, I did, and I wrote, uh, Michael was talking in class. Uh, Michael was chewing gum in class. Uh, Michael stole Charlie's apple juice. And Michael pulled Margot's hair. I was a bad kid. And I had to keep writing this over and over, right? I had to write in small, like small letters, over and over until the entire board was filled. And as I was doing so, the principal walked in and asked me what I was doing. And so I told her that I, was, um, I had to misbehave and this was my punishment. And so she looked at me and said, you know, this is ridiculous. Young man, are you sorry for what you did? Are you sorry? And I said, yeah, I'm really sorry. I'll never pull her hair again. And so what she did was she went to the sink and she got a sponge and she wet the sponge and she proceeded to wipe the board clean on my behalf. You know, I always remember this because she could have used a regular eraser. You know, when you erase it and you still see the residue in the background. But she took a sponge and she wiped the board clean. And to my delight, as the chalkboard dried, all of my sins were gone. So likewise, God wipes the slate clean. He wipes away all of your sins if you are in Christ. So friends, let me ask you, do you live your life as if you are completely forgiven? You know, some of you live, live as if God is still angry with you, as if he still holds your record of debt against you. Some of you think that if you were standing before God, you would still have to settle your account. And God will take your record, he'll take your IOU and write guilty, 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 guilty for every single item. But you see, because of Christ, it actually says forgiven, 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 forgiven. Friends, are you in Christ? If so, you are completely forgiven. So let me ask you, what have you done this week? 
what sins have you committed just this week? Are you sorry? If so, confess your sins, and he who is faithful and just will forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Friends, walk in the light. Walk in the light, repent of your sins, and live your life as if you are completely forgiven. This brings us to my last point, point number three. In Christ, we have a complete victory. So because of Christ, we have a complete victory. Look at verse 15. He, that's God, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So in Christ, God triumphs over the rulers and authorities. That's what Paul's saying. Now, the rulers and authorities refer to Satan and his demons. It refers to fallen angels who oppose God. So you see, Jesus, not only does Jesus save us from sin, but he also saves us from the principalities and powers of the world. This teaching is known as the doctrine of Christus Victor, which is Latin for Christ the Victor. And the idea is this, that Christ in his death and resurrection overcame the powers that held us in subjection. It teaches that on the cross, Jesus was truly victorious. He was victorious over sin. He was victorious over death. And he was also victorious over the demonic powers of the world. Christ was and is victorious. Okay, so let's talk about Satan. You know, we live in an age where nobody talks about angels and demons anymore. Right? As 21st century Christians, we only relate to what we see with our eyes. But the Bible says that there's a supernatural world, an invisible world consisting of angels and demons. And so I want to remind you that we have an adversary. The devil exists. He's a spiritual being who leads an entire kingdom composed of demonic powers. And he opposes God's purposes. He opposes God's people. That's you. And he hates the gospel. But I also want to remind you that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And he does this in and through his death on the cross. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says. He says that Jesus died to destroy the one who has the power of death. And who's that? The devil. So you see, when it comes to the cross, what seemed like a defeat was actually victory. What seemed like a loss was actually triumph. Friends, the cross is God's triumph. It was where atonement would be made, sin would be defeated, and our debt would be paid. And so as a result of this victory, Jesus did two things to the satanic powers of the world. Uh, First, he disarmed them, and then second, he put them to open shame. So just like a soldier who disarms his enemy, Jesus disarmed Satan. He stripped Satan of his power. Now, how does he do that? Well, let's consider for a moment who the devil is. You see, the word devil means accuser, which tells us that the devil's power comes from his accusations. Look at Revelation 12, verse 10. The devil here is described as the one who accuses us day and night before our God. So Satan's most powerful weapon is his power of accusation. But what we learned in verse 14 is that God in Christ has already forgiven us of all of our trespasses. So that's how the cross disarms Satan. 
It takes away his power to accuse. This is why Christians sing that when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, I look and I see him there who made an end to all my sin. Martin Luther once said that when the devil throws your sins in your face and tells you that you deserve hell, you tell him this. Tell him, I do deserve hell. I deserve it. But I know someone who suffered and died on my behalf. His name is Jesus. And where he is, I will be also. Jesus disarms Satan by taking away his power to accuse. But not only does Jesus disarm Satan, uh, he also puts him to open shame. Now, the image here is that of a Roman parade. So like in the ancient world, the Roman general would take part in a parade to celebrate a decisive victory. It's sort of like when the Yankees win the World Series, right? We have a parade for them in New York. And so upon the return of that general, there would be a parade through the streets of Rome. The general and his army would lead the parade, and then they would be followed by the opposing army in chains. And these prisoners would be led in open shame. This was meant to be a public display of victory so that all will see the glory of the victor and the defeat of his enemies. Friends, this is a picture of the resurrection. The resurrection was an open declaration of Jesus' victory. It was where his triumph was announced by the Father as Jesus is raised in glory. And it was where Satan was publicly put to shame as he waits his destruction on the final day. Brothers and sisters, Satan is real. He is real and he is dangerous. Even while defeated, he sows doubt and destruction. This is why Peter tells us that that we should be sober-minded and be watchful because Satan prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He comes at us both morally and intellectually, and he seeks to destroy your faith. But Christ has defeated him. And his victory is your victory. And because his victory was complete, you can live in the fullness of his victory. So are you living in victory? Do you live as if Christ has won the battle? That Christ has defeated sin, Satan, death, and hell? Friends, how complete is your salvation? Your salvation is complete. Let me close with four points of application. Uh, Here are four ways I think we can apply this to our lives. Application number one, spend time studying the doctrine of union with Christ. Spend some time studying and meditating upon the doctrine of union with Christ. Spurgeon once said that there is no joy in this world like union with Christ. The more we feel it, the happier we are. And friends, this doctrine is at the center of our salvation. It's important because it helps us understand how the work of Christ can be applied to us. Right? How is it that when Christ died, we can be forgiven? Or when he dies, his righteousness gets credited to us? Well, the answer is because we are united to him by faith. So set aside time to study this doctrine and see how because of this union, we have a new identity, a new nature, a new life, and a new birth. We have these blessings and many more because of our union with Christ. So how I suggest you begin is by going to an online Bible site like Bible Gateway and type in the words in Christ in the search bar. So type in the words in Christ in quotes 
in the search bar and then read over some of the verses that come up. And after you're done with that, search in him, in quotes, and then read over the New Testament passages that come up. And by doing this, what it'll do is it'll give you a general idea of what the Bible teaches about union with Christ. And then I want to point you to a sermon that Ed preached uh, in January of 2016, and the title of that sermon is Union Dues. So Union Dues from January of 2016. And if you still want to learn more, I want to point you to a book by Marcus Johnson named One with Christ. So that's One with Christ by Marcus Johnson, many of us have been helped by that book. So spend some time studying and meditating upon your union with Christ. Application number two, live your life free from condemnation. Live your life free from condemnation. One of the things Christians struggle with is fear and doubt over God's assessment of themselves. We say that we believe in grace and forgiveness, but sometimes we doubt God's grace and forgiveness. And so we think of God as if he's sort of like an accountant in the sky. You know, hollow it be thy spreadsheets. And so what he's doing is he's keeping track of all of your sins. And he will one day make you pay. I mean, this is what the Catholics believe. Right? When you go to those confession booths, depending on the severity of your sins the priest will either ask you to recite some prayers or he'll ask you to perform acts of penance to help atone for your sins. In other words, you must pay. So let me remind you that whatever your past, whatever you've done, Christ took all of your sins to the cross. Not just the ones you committed before you were saved, but every sin that you would ever commit. Christ appeared once for all, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And his work was complete. So if you trust him, he applies his completed work to you. There's nothing you can do to undo it, and there's nothing you can do to add to it. It is done, it is finished, it is complete. So therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right, the, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. You have been forgiven. So don't condemn yourself. Don't subject yourself to self-condemnation. And do not think that somehow you can do acts of penance to cancel out your sins. You can't. Trust in Christ. Trust that your sins have been covered by his blood. And live your life free from condemnation. Application number three, confess your sins regularly. Confess your sins regularly. So since you are completely forgiven, you should be free to confess your sins without fear of judgment. So make it a habit of regularly confessing your sins. Now, why should we do this? Well, the main reason is that the Bible tells us to confess our sins. James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you might be healed. 1 John 1.89 says that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So God commands us to confess our sins. And we should do this regularly because every day we have fresh sins to confess. I think that sometimes we're so afraid of being like the Roman Catholics 
that we don't confess our sins at all. We don't confess it to God and we don't confess it to one another. But what happens is that we deceive ourselves into thinking that we don't sin. Brothers and sisters, you have fresh sins to confess every day. Sin disrupts our fellowship with God. So we need to come before him like a child comes before his parents. Not to earn forgiveness, but to rest in it, to have it freshly applied. So make it a habit as a part of your prayer life to confess your sins. And when appropriate, confess your sins to one another. So friends, do not fight sin with a guilty conscience. Confess it. Repent, receive his forgiveness, and live as if you are completely forgiven. And lastly, application number four, do not be afraid of Satan. Brothers and sisters, are you afraid of Satan? Are you afraid of his accusations? The Bible says that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Satan is our greatest enemy. He is the liar who seeks to deceive. He is the tempter who seeks to ensnare and the accuser who seeks to condemn. And his goal is to destroy your faith with his accusations. But the Apostle Paul gives us a great reason why Christians should never fear Satan. And the reason is this. Christ has conquered. Christ has conquered by his death on the cross. You see, the fact of the matter is we fight a defeated enemy. We're engaged in a war in which the outcome has already been determined. And although we wrestle against forces greater than ourselves, we can rest assured that Christ has disarmed Satan and put him to open shame. So do not fear because Christ has conquered. And by the way, his conquest continues today. His conquest is extended as the church goes out on mission. We go out in the power of the Spirit to preach Christ and to call people to repent and believe the gospel. So Christian, don't be afraid of Satan. Be focused on your mission. Preach the gospel. Preach the gospel until the last of his elect come home. And then the trumpets will sound and the Lord will descend and Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire. And behold, God will make all things new. So in light of this, and until then, give thanks to God who leads us in triumphal procession and give thanks to God who's given us the victory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that on the cross, it was finished. You have fully purchased our salvation. Christ has done it all. And because of our union with him, our sins are forgiven And Satan has been defeated and put to shame. And so our salvation is complete. Help us to recognize this truth and to rest in this truth and to live in the good of this truth. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.